This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to announce that in our second segment today, we're going to have a most fascinating talk with UC Davis's own professor of political science, Larry Berman, who's currently out on a book tour uh, to promote his landmark book titled Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Fan Soon An, Time Magazine Reporter and Vietnamese Communist Spy. You may have heard Dr. Berman a couple weeks back with Scott Simon on National Public Radio's Weekend Edition. We're going to have him for a little bit longer than the seven minutes that, that he got on NPR, and we will get into some very, very interesting stuff. Trust me. Again, that will be in our second segment about 20 minutes from now. And in segment three, we'll speak with Dr. Kirsten Gillardi, veterinarian and executive director of the CDOC Society, a program of the UC Davis Wildlife Health Center. We'll talk about the California Lost Fishing Gear Recovery Program, currently uh, operating from San Francisco to the Mexican border, which has so far retrieved over 10 tons of lost fishing gear from California coastal waters and eliminating their possibility of injuring aquatic wildlife. That, again, is in segment three. Let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in this case is May 23rd. On May 23rd, 1533, the marriage of Henry VIII of England to Catherine of Aragon was annulled. Although Henry VIII's uh, fierce defense of Catholicism had earned him the title Defender of the Faith by the Church, the inability to secure a divorce from uh, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain led to his founding of the Anglican Church in England, better known as the Episcopalian Church here in North America. Per the website for famous Anglicans and Episcopalians, we learn that it has been a popular religious orientation of numerous political figures in the U.S., including former Vice President Spiro T. Agnew, the 21st U.S. President Chester Allen Arthur, and Bush 41, also known as George Herbert Walker Bush. The list also includes Bono, lead singer for U2, Charles Darwin, the father of evolutionary biology, actor Humphrey Bogart, described as lapsed, and actress Tallulah Bankhead, who identified herself as high Episcopalian agnostic. And that's probably more than you wanted to know about Episcopalianism. So let's move on to May 23rd, 1827. On that date, a school to, quote, relieve parents of the laboring classes from the care of their children, unquote, was established in New York City. It was America's first nursery school. And finally, May 23, 1949, Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin lifted the Berlin blockade. A 10-month American airlift of goods kept 2.5 million Berliners from starvation and freezing. That came at the expense of 78 U.S. airmen's lives. The airlift made West Berlin a symbol of resistance to communism. For our quote of the day, we'll use... The immortal Mark Twain, who once said, A man who doesn't read good books has no advantage over the man who can't read them. Our statistic of the day comes from Business Week magazine, which notes that since November, a team of Viacom employees has viewed 2 million video clips on YouTube. They're hunting for unauthorized Viacom content. 
So far, the squad has sent YouTube about 200,000 demands to take down offending clips. And Radio Parallax is pleased to announce the resumption of publication of Radar Magazine. There's been a void among American smart-ass magazines since the decline of Spy, and we're glad to see that Radar has come back to try and fill the void. And for our joke of the day, we cannot resist excerpting from an article in Radar by Mike Sachs and Ted Travelstead titled, Wrong Exit, The Very Worst Places to Die. This reminds us of the great quote by Woody Allen that uh, he said he knew he was going to have to die one day, but he didn't want to be there when it happened. And it's going to happen to all of us, and we're going to be somewhere when it does, but we do like this list of what are the very worst places that this might happen. Such as your parents' garage whipping up your first bath of meth. Another bad place to go, your company's corporate bonding retreat while you're doing the firewalk. All right, another bad place to go, the Museum of Sex gift shop. And surely included among the very worst places of die would be Outback Steakhouse, holding the, mate, I can't believe I just ate 25 racks of ribs, trophy. All right, another really bad place to die, at a Civil War reenactment, leading the charge. But my... Personal favorite among Radar Magazine's choices of the very worst places to die, riding the tilt-a-whirl as funky cold Medina blasts over the loudspeakers. You know what I'm saying? That Medina's a monster, y'all. Funky cold Medina. Anyway, you can count on more quotes from Radar in future installments of uh, Radio Parallax. In fact, you can, you can cut on one coming right now. From their letters section, noted uh, attorney David Boyce, who, as I recall, worked for the GOP during the uh, Florida election 2000 theft of uh, the 25 electoral votes. Mr. Boyce wrote the magazine to say, I and my firm represent Charlie Rose. It has come to our attention that Radar has published an article about Mr. Rose filled with inaccuracies, including a description that he slid his hand up another man's wife's skirt and palmed her buttock like a honeydew. We demand an immediate retraction. Very truly yours, David Boys, Armonk, New York. To which Radar replied, We double-checked with our source, and she assures us that Mr. Rose palmed her buttock very much like a honeydew. If, however, Mr. Rose is quite certain he palmed it in a different manner, and you can suggest a more fitting metaphor, we will consider amending the phrase in republished versions of the article. To which we say... All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. This section of Radio Parallax, the good, the bad, and the ugly, has now been outsourced to Bangalore, India. 
where we believe we can provide this service to listeners at a very reduced price. Well, actually, no, we haven't been outsourced yet. But our first item does, in fact, come from the Indian subcontinent, where it was noted by The Week magazine that last week was a good week for self-propulsion. After hundreds of Indian rail passengers were told to get out of their stalled train and push. It took the grunting passengers more than half an hour to move the massive train 12 feet so that it could touch live overhead wires and resume its journey. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for well-meaning jocularity after a Colorado eatery has agreed to change the name of its signature sandwich, the Wop Burger, to the Italian Burger. Owners of the Blue Parrot Diner in Louisville say the burger was named 88 years ago by the diner's newly immigrated founders, Michael and Emira Colacci. As it, this was meant as a tribute to their Italian heritage and that no one objected until a transplanted East Coast Italian-American raised a stink. Said grandson Richard Colacci, losing the Watt burger is hard to take, but it'll still be a part of our history. And it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for trying to boldly go where no man has gone before when it was revealed that, that the cremated remains of Star Trek actor James Doohan were lost somewhere in New Mexico. Apparently, a company called Space Services charges the budget fee of $495 for memorial flights, which in this case launched the actor's ashes just outside of the Earth's atmosphere to the edge of space. The capsule then fell back to Earth as planned, along with the remains of 200 other clients, but landed on an inaccessible hillside covered with thick vegetation. The capsule was later recovered. We at Radio Parallax do not know the actual cost uh, that you need to shell out to get your ashes up out of the atmosphere and in permanent orbit. And if you know the answer to that, please send us the information at info at radioparallax.com. All right, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, a few items from the miscellaneous file. We've noted that uh, the movie industry is now preparing to, uh, to consider depictions of smoking in determining the ratings of new films alongside sex, violence, and adult language. If a movie glamorizes smoking in the estimation of the film board, a film that otherwise might have been rated PG-13 will be rated R, rendering it off-limits to unaccompanied kids under 17. We've reported on this program numerous times about how the tobacco industry has apparently paid quite a hefty sum to the people down in Hollywood to get a favorable look at uh, smokers uh, on the big screen. And it's, you know, it's high time this was taken into account in ratings. One of the articles on this story featured a very hip-looking Humphrey Bogart uh, wearing a, uh, a trench coat and, uh, and fedora with a cigarette in his right hand. It is worth noting that uh, Humphrey Bogart did contract esophageal cancer, no doubt uh, in relation to the number of cigarettes he smoked. Another story where uh, smoking meets the arts. Uh, in Chicago, the aldermen uh, there decided to refuse to grant dozens of theaters an exception to Chicago's smoking ban in theaters, which went into effect in January 2006. It's been noted that enforcing the law would mean prosecuting the likes of Kathleen Turner, who appeared earlier this year in Edward Albee's 
Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I would like to note that uh, in San Francisco last month, I did take in Kathleen Turner's alleged acting performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and I am going to go on record as favoring prosecution of her for that. If not for smoking on stage, then for, you know, impersonating an actor. Anyway, it was funny. You could smell her cigarettes as she puffed away up on the stage, but, uh, you know, that was far, far from the greatest of her crimes. All right, let's do a little bit more serious stuff. We note that our favorite California congressman, John Doolittle, may be in a bit of hot water when you see headlines in the Chronicle like, GOP congressman declares innocence. And yes, we were quite puzzled as to why the Sacramento Bee published a very lengthy excerpt of uh, Congressman Doolittle's interview with Tom Sullivan. We think they had a bit of egg on their face when uh, Mr. Sullivan revealed the very next day that, boy, he'd be interested in running for the congressman's seat if he has to step down. Personally, we hope that Tom Sullivan remains on the air over at KFBK. A lot of people in Sacramento do suffer from insomnia, and we can't think of a better way to allow a person to reach dreamland than to tape some of Tom Sullivan's broadcasts and play them back when you're lying there in bed. If his droning, monotonous voice can't get you to sleep, well, you may have to seek professional help. And uh, near the end of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about Renee Montaigne's visit to the Mondavi Center. The, the good people at uh, Cap Radio did invite uh, yours truly over to listen to her talk uh, yesterday morning before she came over here to Davis. I was struck by the fact that she talked about uh, listener fatigue and how uh, a story that keeps going on and on and on can wear people out. It appears that uh, the war in Iraq is something they have to ponder on Morning Edition because, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem to go away. It's just this bad toothache of a news story that just goes on and on. And you may have noticed, as we have on this program, that, uh, that yes, it is a story that we're sort of, we're just, we're just all getting sick of. And I think that's probably why the, uh, the Democrats uh, sort of withdrawing their uh, insistence of a timeline uh, is back at page like, uh, you know, A11 in the B. This had been predicted by David Broder in the Washington Post last week. He noted that there's a major disconnect between public opinion and Washington reality. Every major poll now indicates that most Americans think Iraq is not worth the loss of more American lives. And yet, following President Bush's recent veto of a military spending bill that included timetables for troop withdrawals, Democrats are not likely to force Bush's hand. Broder went on, is the will of the people being thwarted? In a word, yes, but not indefinitely. The beauty of our constitutional system is that while the president runs the military, the people pick the president. Well, based on our talk with Dr. Steve Freeman a couple weeks back, apparently not. We, uh, we got a report a couple nights ago from our, one of our Hollywood uh, correspondents, uh, Donald Rose, who noted that Al Gore was being mobbed at an event down there with uh, Harry Shearer, and that a petition was being circulated to get him to run for president in 2008. Personally, we think that's a pretty good idea, and we're going to do, do our best to get Mr. Gore on the program. We expect we may have somewhat better luck with Harry Shearer. We'll see. Let's take a let's take a break. Before we go, I do want to note that the former Radio Parallax guest Peter G. Peterson was in the news a couple days back, as his Blackstone, the world's most powerful private ec- equity firm, apparently raised almost eight billion dollars uh, from an investment by the Chinese. The issue of Chinese investment in the American economy, we will surely return to and. Well, perhaps we can get Peter Peterson uh, to talk to us again. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. 
We'll be joined in a moment by Professor Larry Berman to talk about The Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Pham Soon An. Dr. Larry Berman is a professor of political science here at UC Davis. He divides his time between Davis and Washington, D.C. Dr. Berman has authored three well-received books on Vietnam, including No Peace, No Honor, Nixon, Kissinger, and Betrayal in Vietnam. His research has taken him to Vietnam on numerous occasions. At a party during one visit in 2001, Chance placed Dr. Berman across the table from an elderly Vietnamese man who noted with delight that he'd studied journalism in California in the 50s. The man was familiar with Davis, he said, having visited while interning at the Sacramento Bee. His knowledge of Vietnam was encyclopedic, leading Dr. Berman to guess early on that his dinner companion might be Pham Soon An, a journalist who had worked for Reuters and Time magazine while all the while spying for the North Vietnamese communists. Dr. Berman befriended Pham Soon An and made many trips to Vietnam to learn what he might from him. The result is the book, Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Pham Soon An, Time Magazine reporter, and Vietnamese communist agent. Dr. Berman's much in demand for a current uh, book tour. He's appeared on National Public Radio with Scott Simon earlier this month, and we're very pleased to have him join us today. Dr. Larry Berman, welcome to Radio Parallax. I'm delighted to be here. Reporter David Lamb said, read Larry Berman's well-researched book and you'll understand why victory was never truly within the United States' reach. The Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese, were well known for their good intelligence. So my first question is, how key was Pham Soon An to the victory of the forces he worked for? He was instrumental to the victory of the communists, uh, without a doubt. He received four special medals or exploit medals. Uh, but he was most valuable, and he was promoted to the rank of general and made a hero of the revolution primarily for his initial contributions at the early stage of the war in the early 1960s when the communist Vietnamese were literally aghast at two things. First of all, that this large country, this great country, the United States of America, was clearly going to be sending large numbers of troops to small Vietnam 9,000 miles away to uh, somehow fight for democracy or something, whatever the Vietnamese thought we were doing. And uh, they had also no understanding of our, of our military strategy. What would the Americans be doing? The helicopters and our great equipment were doing extraordinary damage. And it was on early reports on counterinsurgency uh, and recommendations on how to fight the Americans, particularly the helicopters in 1962 and 1963, which were instrumental in allowing the military planners in Hanoi to devise a counter strategy to combat U.S. forces. General Giap was so excited after reading on reports that he said, we are now in the Americans' war room. And General Giap, of course, was the supreme commander of communist forces in Vietnam. 
the, the strategist Sun Tzu called spies the most important assets that a military force can have. Um, compared to other notable spies of the 20th century, how would you say that Pham Sunan compares? I think he was one of the greatest spies of the 20th century, primarily because to be an effective spy, one needs to have a perfect cover. And An had the perfect cover, both as a journalist, but also as a friend of Americans. And it was something that the communists had really cultivated uh, as early as 1955-56, when the decision was really made to send On to study in America and send to California so that he can learn all he could about the Americans. And one of the remarkable things about Han's effectiveness is how well he blended in, not only with the Americans, because uh, someone might say, well, it was easy to fool, let's say, uh, you know, someone at Orange Coast College where he was a student, uh, but it was more difficult to fool a David Halberstam or a Neil Sheehan or a Stanley Carno, his closest friends, but he also became close friends with the legendary CIA operatives of the day, people like William Colby and uh, Edward Lansdale and Lucius Conine. And, of course, he also fooled uh, all of the South Vietnamese leaders, uh, some of whom were his closest friends. So the effectiveness of his cover, I think, makes him the, I consider him to be one of the great spies of the 20th century. Well, in reading the book, Dr. Berman, I was quite, I was quite struck by the fact that, that Ahn was, was picked by the communists to learn about Americans via a cover of journalism. And yet, of course, as you say, he was also, his pursuit of the trade was also fostered by Edward uh, Lansdale. Lansdale helped on get a scholarship from the Asia Foundation, a CIA undertaking. It just—it seems quite ironic that both sides wanted the same thing from uh, from Pham Soon on. Right, and as you know, at the end of the book, I do speculate about whether or not he was actually a triple agent. I hope we get a chance to talk about that a little. But imagine the foresight of the Vietnamese communists to recognize in 1957 that. America was coming. In other words, we had replaced the French in terms of money and equipment. The French had been defeated in 1954 at the MBM Fu. And all people like An wanted, I view An in my book as a Vietnamese nationalist. I hardly ever use the term communist because, of course, when he joined the Communist Party, it was really for him a nationalist movement. And what that meant for him was he only wanted no foreign armies, the Japanese, the French, the Chinese, no one in Vietnam. This was for the Vietnamese to decide their future on their own. And imagine the foresight in 57 for them to realize that America was coming, and they had to prepare for this. They had no idea who the Americans were. They had no idea uh, how they would combat uh, the American forces. And so they turned to Pham Soon An. And why did they turn to Pham Soon An? Because he was one of the few people who spoke English. Uh, and uh, he, he had learned English from uh, missionaries in Vietnam. He was a brilliant man, a, a high school dropout, but a brilliant man who had a real propensity for two subjects, mathematics and languages. And uh, they sent him to the United States, but he needed a sponsor. And who would be the sponsor? The American CIA, <laughs> uh, uh, General Edward Lansdale, who liked Don so much in Vietnam that he thought here was this great anti-communist that... Uh, could go to the United States, learn our values, come back and help fight communism. But just, of course, there was all, just imagine the, the, the extraordinary mental discipline the, that An had, even at this young age, to be able to hide his real mission from everybody else. That, I think, is a remarkable story. So you're at a dinner party. This legendary spy, uh, by chance, is across the table from you. He finds out you're a historian with an interest in the Vietnam War. What hooked him in, in the things you were writing about uh, that got him interested in what you were up to? That's a great question. And actually, I'll never forget this evening because it was the first night I met on. 
Uh, I was finishing my book, No Peace, No Honor, Nixon, Kissinger, and Betrayal in Vietnam, which was really a book about the secret Paris negotiations between Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Thu, uh, and for both of whom would, rec- would, would receive the Nobel Prize, uh, but only Kissinger would accept it uh, because uh, Thu, Le Duc Thu had announced that he would not accept it because no peace had really come to Vietnam. And my book was very critical of those negotiations, but I had still had a lot of questions, and a lot of documents were still classified. And An asked me at dinner, what are you working on? And I told him, and I clearly demonstrated to him that I've been working on this book for several years. I had intimate details of conversations. And An said, you know, I know a lot about those conversations. Uh, I could be a, a source to you. Why don't we have breakfast, you know, tomorrow and uh, or lunch? And uh, we met the next day. And actually, I, I stayed. I changed my entire trip, and I stayed in Saigon for five days. We met for five or six hours a day, and he took me through his knowledge about what had happened in the secret negotiations between Le Duc Thu and Henry Kissinger. So he became a source of mine for that book. And then when the book was published, I, of course, gave him a copy, and he read it very carefully, and then he asked me to see my other two books. Uh, and that, I think, created in him a great respect for my own scholarship. And he did not want someone who knew him during the war to write about his story. He wanted someone who had been removed, and that, I think, was a plus for me. But he also trusted me based upon my previous book. So that's, that's our story, actually. Did he tell you things early on that you knew right away, like, wow, that's a surprise? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. But he told me two or three things about uh, the Kissinger negotiations and uh, that were, I put two of, two of the three, I was able to put in my book, No Peace, No Honor, primarily because I was able to find a second attribution for it. I didn't want to put it in just based upon what a communist spy had told me, because that would open me up to, I think, fair criticism that I had just been spun by somebody. Uh, but he told me two things, particularly on this very crucial period in October 1972 that I was in later able to corroborate with the South Vietnamese, uh, and uh, that allowed for the book to have the impact that it did. And so I, I understood right away that this was a guy who had more knowledge about the war and about the Americans and the Vietnamese and what had happened than anyone I had met in my 30 years in this profession. And I just became so interested in pursuing not only his story, but anything else that he could tell me about the war. And it was really pretty clear that he had a lot. But as I say in the book, he also took a lot with him to his grave because, you know, he did draw a line in a certain place where he wasn't going to tell me everything, but he told me enough to really allow me to write the book. What did he tell you that you couldn't corroborate 100% that you might suspect he took to, to, to the grave, a secret? that story there are those things that he he stopped that when i'd ask him a question he just didn't answer and on that i can only speculate what he what he was hiding and i think a lot of that had to do with uh things that he did during the tet offensive of 1968 where he really he received a special medal and citation for his role in identifying all of the infiltration sites for the communist forces to come into vietnam and in 1968, into, into Saigon in 1968, and, and uh, Americans were Americans were killed during this period, and, and indeed his direct supervisor took responsibility for killing those Americans. And An really drew the line there. He did not want to talk about that, and I, I can only speculate as to why, because in the book I do discuss that I, you know, he has a lot of blood on his hands, uh, but uh, he tried to always sidestep that. So that's one thing uh, that. I think it's important, but the most 
I think the things that he really took to the grave with him, and he did talk to me a little about, was what happened in 1975, which is as Saigon fell, I mean, he really worked to get a lot of people out on the South. That is, you know, his country's enemy. Uh, and uh, he worked tirelessly to get these people out because he knew when the communists got there, uh, these people would be tortured and then killed. And he saved the lives of many people, including this Dr. Twin, who I talk about quite, I have a large section in the book about, and that created a lot of problems for Ron after the war. And I think he'll, he, he, he drew the line on just how far he wanted to talk about that, because that would have brought us into a conversation about whether or not he was working for three sides. I was struck, sir, in reading your book, talking about 1975, about how the North Vietnamese pushed to move against the Saigon government after the peace accords. It appears it was in no small part due to the fact that An analyzed uh, the fact that of what America was likely to do, and he, he told the people in the North, they're not going to re-enter the conflict once the forces pulled out. So, in essence, his analysis was critical to the finishing off of the two government. Did historians really realize his role in this? No one knew his role in this until... Uh uh, until I started really writing about this. And this is really crucial, actually, because uh, An was Vietnam's American expert, and this was the only time, as you know from reading the book, this is the only time in every, any report that he ever sent up that the Politburo challenged him. They, they, they were not sure, and An understood the American temperament so well, but he also understood the South Vietnamese. And he sent up a report saying, no, you can begin this, this assault on, on, on Saigon really almost two years before anyone ever thought it would occur, because the Americans are not coming back, they're not going to bomb, Nixon's got this problem with Watergate, he can't fight two constitutional battles. Ahn was so astute about this, and he sent yeah. this complete report up. His report was so detailed that he discussed Watergate, the impact of Watergate on Nixon, and explained to his communist uh, bosses in, in Hanoi why Nixon could not fight a constitutional battle over war powers because he was fighting one over to save his presidency. And this is just a remarkable uh, story as the way, way I'm related it to me. And indeed, he received his final citation uh, for his contributions in the victory of the Americans in the, in the American War, as they call it, uh, for, the, for that. And the irony, of course, is that he did all of that, and as these communist troops marched into Saigon, uh, or what would soon be Ho Chi Minh City on April 30th, 1975, An had to go into hiding. And he had to go into hiding because he was only known by everyone as a Time Magazine reporter and correspondent, friend of the Americans, friend of the CIA, and any of these troops coming in would have just shot him on the spot if because no one would believe he was uh, a communist agent. What was he going to say? As I, as I explained in the book, I think one of the funniest sequences in the book were on says to me, what am I going to tell these soldiers as they walk in? Hey, it's me, Pham Sunan. I've been a double agent for you know <laughs> 20 years, and I've been providing all these reports. And then they would ask me where my wife and children are, and I would say, oh, I evacuated <laughs> them to the United States. They would shoot me right there on the spot uh, as, a, as a crazy man. So he was in a very precarious situation. Shoot him and then have his dogs for dinner. Is I guess how right, he phrased it. Right, he was renowned as a great. Uh, yeah. He was renowned all throughout uh, Saigon as uh, as the best dog trainer, which is also part of his his cover. But his cover was so good. I mean, just think about this. His cover was so good that he his he evacuated his wife and family 
to the United States. They went to Camp Pendleton, they ended up in L.A., then they flew from L.A. to Virginia, and they settled in with the anti-communist refugee community, which today makes the backbone of not only uh, uh, Arlington, uh, Virginia, and Alexandria, and, uh, but also, of course, Westminster, California, Orange County, California. And they were part of that community. And he sent them there because he was fearful that they also would be killed, but also it would protect him. And, and no one knew if they would ever see each other. And a lot of thought was given to whether or not An should actually be sent to the United States to continue his spying, but that was overruled in the Politburo. Once he had a report, how did he get it up to the people that wanted it up in the north? Yeah, well, you know, we talk about all our sophisticated equipment and everything like that. And in my book, I describe the courier system that worked effectively for 15 years. Uh, An was very superstitious. He's uh, a Virgo, uh, the only star. This is An now talking about this. Uh, the only uh, star uh, protected by by women, goddesses. And he believed his life was protected by women, and therefore he insisted on having a woman courier, and only one woman courier. And the way this would work is, An would get these documents uh, during the day. Uh, he would bring them home at night, and when his children were asleep, he and his wife, his wife worked with him, she would photograph the documents, and he would uh, read them and then write reports analytical reports based upon the content of these military documents and then they and he would do them in invisible ink actually and he showed me how he did that and then once the ink evaporated on this blank paper uh... he would take traditional vietnamese uh, rolls we could might say egg rolls for example uh... and in the egg rolls his wife would put the film canister and they would wrap the egg rolls in blank paper but it really wasn't blank it was just a visible ink which were the complete reports uh... and the next morning on would carry about five or six of these uh... rolls wrapped up four or five of which contained film canisters and go to the busy Saigon market where he would meet his courier, a woman by the name of Winti Ba, who I spent quite a bit of time with interviewing her in, uh, in Saigon. Uh, she's today over 90 years old. He had personally selected her as his courier. And they would have a conversation. He would say, are you hungry? She would say yes, and he would give her one roll to try. She would try it, and she would like it. This was not a secret report roll, but just a regular roll. And then he would say, well, maybe you want some more. And he would pass them to her, and then she would carry them out to the communist base in Kuchi. And then eventually it would take two weeks, but the reports would eventually make it by courier all the way to Hanoi. Uh, and uh, sometimes it was so important that they would be sent by Morse code, but the film was always carried by courier. And uh, it's a remarkable system, two people. And what makes the story even more amazing is that his courier, Winti Ba, was illiterate. Uh, she could not read, which protected her. Uh, also, from, if she had ever gotten caught, she would never know what was in there. It, she would be killed, but she, even if she was tortured, she wouldn't have any idea what was in the reports. So she was an illiterate uh, courier, uh, and uh, on was this uh, high school dropout who had this extraordinarily sophisticated mind, and together I think they made one of the great spy teams in history. Let's return back to that issue of, of, of double agent versus triple agent. Uh, I was really curious when I read the book to know that uh, that Ahn knew William Colby pretty well. Colby developed what was called the Strategic Hamlet Program of Forced Resettlements in Vietnam. It was a spectacular failure. It backfired, alienated the population, and aided the Viet Cong. One suspects Ahn must have known it was a really bad idea, which helped the communists. So my question is, did, did he argue that it was bad, or did he let it go, or... 
How did that go down? Uh, without a doubt, on uh, communicated to his bosses in Hanoi the weaknesses of the strategic handling program. He talked to me about it all the time. For example, on believed that the strategic handling program could be effective if the Americans had gone very slow. But the problem was that they were going very fast, and they were trying to move much too quickly. And An reported all of this to Hanoi, and indeed, um, uh, he, while he never received a medal for this, several of the people I interviewed told me his reports on the strategic Hamlet program were absolutely essential. Now, I happen to believe, I cannot prove this, but I certainly believe that An was also an informant for the CIA, but for the CIA, his job would have been to report on the inner workings of the South Vietnamese government. And therefore, you can imagine the irony here. I mean, one can only guess what kind of reports An might have given to the CIA if he was a CIA agent, but it's, in, it's inconceivable that An was not talking to CIA agents about what was going on in, in the Saigon government. I'll never be able to prove that. An always laughed and said, well, that's what everyone in Vietnam thought also after the war, and that's why I got into so much trouble, because certainly after the war, the, the communist Vietnamese thought that he had to have had too many friends, close friends, and he must have been working for someone else, because you couldn't have survived this long without being protected. The other, the other incident that really stunned me in, in reading your book was uh, uh, October 3rd, 71. They had an election in Vietnam. Uh, Nguyen Van Tru ran unopposed, which caused, I think, everyone to sort of think, what a disgusting development. We're fighting for democracy, and the president is unopposed. Yet you reveal in the book that uh, General Big Min was thinking about challenging too, and, and An talked him out of it. You know, I'm so glad you noticed that. You're the, you know, in this entire book tour, you're the first person to ask me this question. I think it's such a important historical points. That's great that uh, you're asking me about this. Absolutely. On, one of An's best friends was Big Min, General Big Min, who was a neutralist uh, and wanted to run. And, uh, and this is this election where there were originally going to be three candidates. Uh, when Cao Ki had already pulled out. Uh, and, uh, uh, and An knew that, he, I mean, An, as An told me, I wanted to get Big Min not to run because the best way to embarrass the United States was to have a one-man election, which was a joke about democracy. Uh, so I told uh, big men that, uh, that, that if he ran, the Americans would use him as a carpet. They would just walk, uh, walk all over him. And, that's ex and big men, as a result of that, did pull out. And I spoke to three people who corroborated that story for me. Big man has uh, passed away, but I got very close to people who knew him, and they all said yes, he and On were very close. And, and big man had told people that On was instrumental in talking him out of that. So whose side was On on when he did that? I think when he talked big man out, uh -huh. he, was on the, he was on the communist side because the best way to sort of create a public awareness that democracy is not about a one-person election is, is to get all the opposition to pull out. After Vietnam uh, reunited, uh, Pham Sunan was treated as a hero, but yet you report in the book he seemed to have had some regrets about how it seemed that American influence was being replaced by Russian and the lack of an open society was, was troubling to him, particularly in regards to the fact that journalism, as he knew it, was no longer being practiced. Did he get over that in the end? He never really got over it, and that's really, you see, two things happened to An in his life that are really crucial. One is 
the time he spent in the United States. He fell in love with our system. Now imagine this, someone on a mission as a spy comes here, and of all places, like they didn't pluck on into you know, Leavenworth, Kansas, or Buffalo, New York, or, or, or you know, Podunk U. They sent him to Casa Mesa, California. You know, the sun shines every day, right? He saw an ocean. The sun came up. He, he learned to surf. He learned to go on sailboats. He, he went to luau's. He's got a girlfriend. And he fell in love with California and the college life from 57 to 59. A lot of people listening to this show can relate to this. So we have this communist agent being sent to America uh, to, on a mission. And they pluck him down and, you know, in, in, you know, in Orange County. And, and he falls in love with California. And then he drives across the United States. He interns in the United Nations. He interns in the Sacramento Bee. He has a picture taken of him with the governor of the state of California, Edmund G. Pat Brown, in which Ahn is identified as the most promising anti-communist journalist in America, going to go back and fight communists. And this cover is set. But inside of him, he's saying to himself, because he has no idea that one day half a million Americans are going to invade his country, defoliate his jungles, B-52 attacks. It's inconceivable to him. I mean, as he said to me, he goes, you could have never told me this. I thought maybe they send a few thousand people, we'd have a little battle somewhere, and it would be over, you know? But never what the American commitment became. So in his mind, you know, all he thinks about is, I can't wait till this thing's over. You know, I'm going to do my mission, I'm going to spy, I'm going to do what I'm told to do, and then when the war's over, I'm coming back to California. I want to see the United States. This is a great country. And he always thought that in Vietnam, after the war, there would be some sort of progressive, you know, not a pure democracy, so to speak, but it would be different than what it became. But the war went on so long, it became a terrible war, the retribution became so great, the American involvement became so great, that in the end of 1975, the new regime trusted no one. And here was on. finally, when people found out who he was, on says, uh, uh, wait, these Americans are great people, you know, uh, and he got in a lot of trouble for that. He was sent to re-education, he was put under house arrest for eight years, and then, to really come back to your original question, but I, by way of background I wanted to give all this, which was, is that, you know, these two countries uh, reconciled. These two countries he loved so much, his native homeland, Vietnam, and the United States, uh, had reconciled. Uh, and while he he was really negative about the fact that Vietnam had uh, was a restrictive government, didn't practice a free press, he did believe that the future was only good for these two countries. Eventually, he thinks reform will come to Vietnam. So you think in the in the end he was he died satisfied that that America and and Vietnam, the two nations he knew, uh, had reconciled. Well, he told me, as I say in the book, I can die happy now because my two loves, these two countries have reconciled. And as you know, just a few months after he died, his eldest son, who he was so close to, his young man by, who has the same name, on, who had also studied journalism in North Carolina uh, and then went to Duke University Law School, served as the official translator during President Bush's visit to Vietnam uh, in uh, 2006. And this to on would have been, you know, the, the perfect ending of, of, of the reconciliation process. Well, just in closing, Dr. Berman, I have to say the supreme irony maybe of, of your book really struck me was that you described in the late 50s, Pham Soon An is the only Vietnamese person possibly in, in Orange County. And when, when I went to medical school in, in Orange County in the late 70s, early 80s, the concept that there were no Vietnamese is amazing. And, and yet so, and so many of them were in Orange County as a direct result of what happened at the end of the war. It's just, it's just amazing to me.
You know that uh, I was in Westminster uh, a couple of weeks, actually two weeks ago, uh, the, the heart of you know, main, basically Little Saigon, and I gave a talk on my book, and everyone in the audience, there were a couple hundred people in the audience, they all said that you know, An was probably the first Vietnamese. I, in my book, I write he was the first, but I'm waiting for someone to challenge that, and no one has, and amongst this entire Vietnamese audience, everyone said, yes, he was the first, and then someone said, and what an irony, the first Vietnamese in Orange County was a communist agent. <laughs> you couldn't make that up if you tried. <laughs> you, you couldn't. The book is The Incredible Double Life of Pham Soon An, Time Magazine reporter and Vietnamese communist agent. We've been speaking with Dr. Larry Berman, professor of political science here at UC Davis, who will be appearing, I guess, next month on the 16th of June at the Avid Reader here in downtown Davis. Uh, that's right. And also, I'll just give a plug. There is a web page for the book. Anyone who wants to see pictures of Ahn and videos and also get some interest uh, anything about Tham Soon An and also espionage for the book, it's just LarryBermanPerfectSpy.com. And uh, they could go there and learn quite a bit about uh, Ahn, see some pictures from his time in California and elsewhere, and as I say, some videos of Ahn from uh, various periods in his life. All right. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you took the time to read it. I appreciate your feedback as well, and I will... Thanks. Look forward to meeting you. All righty. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, joining us now in the program is Dr. Kirsten Gillardi. She is a veterinarian attached to the UC Davis Wildlife Health Center and is deeply involved in what is being called the California Lost Fishing Gear Recovery Project. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Gillardi. Thanks, Doug. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a bit about what's going on across California and its various piers. Yeah, well, it's a project we're really excited about. We got started this spring with an effort to recover discarded fishing line and hooks from pilings underneath public access fishing piers from San Francisco down to San Diego. And the purpose is to really try to get some of this um, line and hooks out of the water where it uh, poses a hazard to birds and to mammals. Um, this fishing line and these hooks can entangle the, the legs and feet of uh, birds and can get swallowed by birds and mammals and um, cause significant injury. Um, to to them, to their intestinal tracts, to their mouths. And so um, I think most people who visit the coast in California at one time or another have seen a gull or a pelican with a hook and line hanging out of hanging out of their mouths or wrapped around their legs, and, and it's a disturbing sight. And so this project is really aimed at reducing the amount of this discarded fishing line in the water um, and also to prevent it accumulating further by um, the installation of fishing line recycling bins on several of these piers that fishermen using the piers have a, a better alternative for discarding their unwanted line. 
So I'm sort of surprised to realize that we've only we've only now gotten to the point where this is an option for fishermen. What do they do before? Just basically toss it in the in the garbage, or I think it really depends. Most fishermen, if there's a if there's a trash can that's convenient, they'll they'll do that. They'll do what's best. Sometimes this line also just gets caught um, underwater. It can get caught on the pilings themselves when they get encrusted with marine life. The line can get caught and break. But certainly, if there's something convenient nearby. And they understand that by doing throwing their line into a recycling bin instead of into the ocean, they're they're uh, protecting wildlife. They're doing something good for the ocean. I think most fishermen will comply. Yeah, I mean, I think about uh, back in the days living in Orange County, going to Newport Beach Pier. There's a lot of people that are fishing off of it. So I imagine this is really quite a significant problem around all the piers. Our divers have started out in Santa Cruz and have cleaned up the pier in Monterey and also one of the piers in. Avila Beach, and now um, most recently down in Manhattan Beach and, and Santa Monica Pier, and um, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of stuff underwater. Um, we're using volunteer divers. Um, my project manager, Jennifer Renzulo, is a very experienced scientific diver, and, and she spent years cleaning marine debris off the coral reefs of north, the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. She's in the water with the volunteer divers, and they find a tremendous amount of line and rope and even some fragments of fishing nets and the occasional bicycle or <laughs> car windshield, in fact. So they find a lot of stuff down there, um, and the, the volunteer divers themselves are just really keen to, to do the work. They're happy to be in the water using their scuba skills to better the environment, the ocean environment. We should mention, too, I think that this is actually a hazard for uh, human beings diving uh, as well. My, my producer in another life was a commercial diver, and he said that you always want to have two knives in case you, while diving, get ensnared. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, divers often carry a, a knife to, to get themselves out of trouble if they get tangled up in something. Um, unfortunately, there are cases of divers getting entangled in monofilament line and drowning, um, and then certainly... Uh, we see evidence of entanglement in wildlife, and and so yes, on on multiple levels, we're we're aiming to remove to get the stuff out of the water to to clean up the ocean to make it a safer place for wildlife and for people as well. And and certainly boat owners will will tell you about the amount of stuff that they get tangled up in their propellers on their boats, and that's that's no fun to clean up either. It can do damage to boats. So um, sort of any way you look at it, it's it's garbage. It doesn't belong there, and we're working to get it to get it out of the water. Dr. Gilardi, uh, this month, uh, Sacramento, the Sacramento River and, and Environs has made the international news with a couple of wayward whales. There was some talk that uh, they'd actually been injured by nets, and I gather that uh, that's not the case? Yes. Early on, um, the, the folks who were first observing the whales as they came up the river noticed a, what appeared to be a rope wrapped around at least the, the adult um, whale, and um, upon closer examination, they realized that what had looked like a rope from afar was actually a fairly deep wound, potentially possibly made by a boat propeller. And because the, the edge of the wound was sort of um, uh, flapping, if you will, in the water, it looked a little bit like a rope that was moving around. But when they looked at it more closely, they realized it was the whale was not entangled in a rope or a, or a piece of fishing gear. But it certainly brought to light once again the potential for entanglement of these animals and there have been cases off the coast of California in the last few years where whales have gotten their tails wrapped up in, in ropes and buoy lines and uh, for fishing gear and, and it's very distressing to see it's distressing for the fishermen as well um, they certainly don't like that happening, they don't like the um, fact that it, it endangers wildlife and they certainly don't like losing their gear so in our overall lost fishing gear recovery program we're, we're working closely with fishermen to to retrieve 
commercial fishing gear out of the water that gets lost. Um, in fact, we contract with commercial fishermen who are divers, urchin harvesters, who to do a significant amount of fishing gear recovery um, down the Channel Islands. And to date, we've removed more than 10 tons of fishing gear nets and traps and ropes and buoys and um, all kinds of things from the seafloor around a few of the Channel Islands. And we're right now actively seeking funding to um, expand our program statewide. And, and I think there's definitely a lot of interest. The, the Ocean Protection Council recently passed a resolution on marine debris and specifically cited uh, lost fishing gear as, a, as an issue of concern and something that they wanted to reduce. And so. Um, it's just one of those issues, marine debris in general, that's getting increasing attention from the public and increasing recognition that marine debris is, is garbage in the ocean, and we, we don't like litter, we don't like garbage on land, and we don't like it in the ocean either. And the Sea Doc Society has developed this, this project, this program, where we're working closely with fishermen and with volunteer divers and with community groups to reduce the problem. Of course, it isn't just, I guess, fishing gear, even even simple garbage. I know a lot of people have been encouraged to, to take and cut the tops of six-packs because the seabirds and the like can sometimes get ensnared if they are intact. Yeah, like you just pointed out, growing awareness for the the risks that this stuff poses to wildlife, um, you know, unfortunately, easy to find pictures on the web of, of birds and turtles and mammals that have things wrapped around them or, or turtles that have swallowed plastic bags or uh, some of our pelagic seabirds will pick up pieces of plastic on the ocean surface um, when they mistake them for a prey item and, and they end up swallowing plastic instead of food. And so um, it's definitely one of those those issues as we uh, have, are becoming increasingly aware of the stressors to our to our oceans, the health of our oceans. Um, this is one of them. And the Sea Doc Society really aims to develop solutions for some of these stressors facing the ocean and its wildlife. And um, the, the Lost Fishing Gear Recovery Project is an example. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to get involved in this very worthy uh, project. Where would you recommend they go for more information, and, and how can they participate? We have a, we have a website, um, www.lostfishinggear.org. Um, it's a good place to get information about our project, about the Sea Doc Society, and about the other programs of the Wildlife Health Center here at UC Davis. The Sea Doc Society is one of our core marine ecosystem health projects, but we, have, um, we do quite a bit of, of work on wildlife and ecosystem health California and internationally. So um, welcome and would encourage anyone interested in uh, wildlife work here at UC Davis to visit our website. And then there's contact information on that page for, for anyone with more questions. Very good. We've been speaking with Dr. Kirsten Gilardi about a year-long effort in California to clean up uh, lost fishing gear and other debris which injures aquatic wildlife. We thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Doug. All right, final point on today's program. I want to talk about Renee Montaigne's appearance at the Mondavi Center yesterday. Thanks to the good people at Capital Public Radio, Donna Abadoni in particular, I was able to uh, attend the event at CPR earlier that morning with Renee and her producer. That would be Ellen McDonald. But uh, actually, we're running out of time. So I think what I'm just going to do is refer you to the excellent article in the Media Savvy section of the Sacramento Bee by... Sam McManus. In fact, let me excerpt from that. People used to say with a measure of condescension that National Public Radio's audience was small but fervent. 
Now it's huge. 26 million listeners a week huge and no less fervent. Three years ago last month, NPR's signature news program, Morning Edition, replaced Bob Edwards, the only host the show has ever had after 24 years. Howls of protest ensued from Morning Edition's listener base, which at the time numbered more than 10 million a week. Its headquarters in Washington received 35,000 email protests. Supporters started online petitions. Some even withheld pledge money, anathema to a nonprofit media outlet. Now here we are three years later and you hardly hear a peep of protest about the Morning Edition lineup. It's widely believed, especially in this space, that Morning Edition is a better, newsier, more nimble and relevant program with Renee Montaigne and Steve Inskeep as co-hosts. Listenership bears that out. More than 13 million tune into the show, which airs locally on KXJZ 90.9 FM, beginning at 3 a.m. Monday through Friday. That gives it the second biggest radio audience in the country behind Rush Limbaugh's syndicated show. Anyway, we refer you back to the article in Media Savvy for more, and we'll report on what we found uh, a little greater length on next week's program. We had Bob Edwards here in Radio Parallax about the time he was leaving uh, Morning Edition, but we have to agree with Sam McManus. It is a better program now. It is much more topical. It's much more up on the events as they're taking place. And it shows that a lot of energy and thought went into improving matters. Our thanks for today's program go to Dr. Kirsten Gillardi. We hope you will uh, follow her advice and go to those websites and see if you can't participate in cleaning up uh, some of our peers here in California. And... A thanks to Dr. Larry Berman, whose book, Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Phan Soon An, Time Magazine reporter and Vietnamese communist agent, is one heck of a good read. We hope we'll have Dr. Berman on again. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. KDVS's musical programming will now resume. We'll see you next week at the same time.